Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Nick here with Percy. Hello. And Todd. Hey there. And we're here to kick off our third season of the podcast with a brief introduction to our first game, Thirsty Sword Lesbians by April Kit Walsh, published by Evil Hat Productions and Gay Spaceship Games. Before we begin, at the end of last season, we mentioned a bunch of our past players and friends would be taking a bigger role in season three. And to kick that off, we're thrilled to have Ben Ferber with us today to share his thoughts and insights into Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Hey, Ben. Glad to be here. Uh, So we thought that we would start by offering a little bit about the premise and the framing of Thirsty Sword Lesbians, even though this short version is it's pretty much what it says on the tin, but we'll talk about that more later. Um, The game designer April Kit Walsh defines the game as, quote, a flexible framework to tell feelings-focused stories about fighting with swords and falling in love. In the handbook, she says the things that a thirsty sword lesbian can do are change the world for the better by acting with integrity and compassion, fight when something is worth fighting for, redeem or seduce adversaries, make out, dance and carouse, solve problems with courage, wit and style, deliver zingers and bon mots, and make lasting friends and enemies. Uh, so game is very much focused on uh, sort of these sweeping heroic stories that are fueled by romance and by relationships and by sort of diving into your emotions and following them where they lead. The game provides a variety of possible worlds and scenarios ranging from high fantasy to space western to cyberpunk, as well as tools to collaboratively generate a setting. Depending on the game master or GM uh, and players, this can be preset, part of a pre-session chat, or part of session zero or session one. I I I do I did want to check because I can't remember. Game master is the official term, right? That is, I just yes. want to call that out because I, this is hard I, in an audio medium. <laughs> I put this in the document here because it wasn't anywhere else, and I thought we needed to say it because game master a rules and b I I have what did what would what did you say GM stood for Nick? In, in like trad games, it would in be game games. master. Game master. Game yes, to be master. Very clear, yes. Game I don't believe master you. is what it is in this game. Yes. <laughs> Um, yes, thank you for highlighting that because I think I alighted over it. Um, and it's very, you're right, Ben, it's very important that we say up top. <laughs> very important to the aesthetic. Yes, this game invented this term and other games are calling a game a master, which is worse. Which is foolish. So uh, this is a game that focuses as much on flirting as it does on fighting. And consequently, it includes some of its own safety tools. Uh, it specifically calls out the TTRPG safety toolkit that we discussed back in season one, episode 23 with Leo Mach, and more in depth on season one, episode 25, if you want to check those out and hear more about the TTRPG safety toolkit. One thing that I'll say I particularly love about this game and that I think it showcases well is that genre is such a like lovely structural thing, not an aesthetic thing. I think we've talked about this before, but there was actually a moment when we were season planning and I was like, I just don't know about this like setting agnostic game because I like can't quite get into what it's supposed to be about. I mean, I get that's about like romance and action and adventure. And oh, I get it. It's actually all the same. It's it's like all the same genre. It's just superficially different things depending on what you set it in. And I, I love that. I don't know what the genre I'd call it is like swashbuckling adventure feels kind of closest. I think it's I think the genre is romance. It's a romance game. Mm, um yeah. and frequently romance stories include like you have to save your lover from the terrible pirates or whatever. Yeah, yes. I think it's like the intersection of like the princess bride and She-Ra the, and the princesses of power. Um it's that swashbuckling ensemble adventure romance. 
thing. And the game art mixes like, you know, genres, right? Like you have people in like futuristic clothing, you have people in contemporary clothing, you have like sword and sorcery type characters, you have like monstrous characters and they still all fit together aesthetically because it, well, it's the same artist, but also they sort of look like they're all colliding in this story that they are in. And so, you know, not only can a player come from a different place in a different playbook, et cetera, but like the story can synthesize all of these elements if wanted into like, well, okay, we're all together. We all have, you know, we're thirsty sword lesbians. Like these three things unite what this game is. As with pretty much any tabletop role-playing game, the way you actually be a thirsty sword lesbian in-game is uh, the players and GM and the game master act out scenes together. Uh, and as this game is powered by the apocalypse, sometimes when a player wants to do something, it requires making a move, which fall into a few different buckets based on what they want to do. There are some basic moves, which we'll go over later, that any player can do. And then every PC has a playbook uh, that will have its own moves so that based on whether you're the beast or the trickster or whatever, you have a sort of unique set of tools at your disposal in addition to those initial basic moves. When you make a move, you're going to make a die roll, just like in Apocalypse World or any of the other games that you've heard in that vein on the podcast. You're going the the players will roll two d6 and add a stat. A result of six or lower is considered a downbeat, which usually means that the game master is going to make a GM move uh, that will complicate the action. Although the player might not necessarily fail in that, a GM move might mean that what the player wants actually comes through, but turns out to be a bad idea or raises a new complication or they do it, but alert somebody else that they're doing it when they want to be quiet about it. Um, it's not a it's it's not a success or failure mechanic so much as it is a do you get by without like like any complications arising or does shit go kind of sideways? One of the other fun tools in the toolbox for the GM of this game uh, is a countdown, which is sort of similar to Blades in the Dark's progress clocks. Uh, it's something that the Game Master can use to signal the stakes of a dangerous situation to the PCs and build tension. So they might say that, OK, we're going to start counting down from five. And if we get to zero, then you're going to be noticed by the emperor's guards uh, as you infiltrate the building and then. If people miss rolls or hit those downbeats, then the clock is going to count down toward zero. If a player makes a move and rolls uh, somewhere in the seven to nine, that's what's called a mixed beat, which usually means they get what they want, but with a little complication. A result of 10 or higher is an upbeat, which means that they succeed. It's beautiful. They do exactly what they want, often with some sort of additional discovery or effect. One of the things that's really neat about this structure, I think, is that the downbeat, upbeat, mixed beat kind of points to the narrative focus of the result of the die roll. They map really neatly to degrees of success in other Powered by the Apocalypse games, but just calling them that, I think, directs your attention a little more to the idea of narrative beats. Um, so there are five stats in Thirsty Sword Lesbians, Daring, Grace, Heart, Wit, and Spirit. Um, daring represents skill at arms and forcefulness, both muscle and personality. Grace represents elegance, poise, and agility. Heart represents emotional awareness and expression. Wit represents cleverness and knowledge. 
and spirit represents metaphysical power and integrity. Um, something that I think is fun about these ideas and these beats are that like you are flirting, you are fighting, you are trying to quip. And while your roles will determine like how biting or successful or flirtatious those things might be, um, you're encouraged to like work with the people at the table to come up with the best one liner because like you don't have to have the best one liner for your character because you have all of these wonderful collaborators with you um, to help work on that one liner or um, that like beautifully devastating flirtatious whatever. Now, do you mean um, to tell me that, that games are collaborative storytelling and players are essentially a writer's room? I think it would be more fun if we thought about it that way sometimes. Well, I have two things, one of which is a tangent, uh, which is that I feel like people for some reason think that when we're playing a game, uh, like we ha it has to all be continuous and we can't stop and be out of character and like think about how cool something like like everyone is like, no, everything we're being filmed and, and we have to perform perfectly and nobody can know that like we're just people doing a game. <laughs> um, but uh, the other thing that I wanted to say about the stats is that I love that there are no physical stats. Um, mm. They're all sort of related. Like the closest thing to a physical stat is like daring, which is about your willingness to do something physical as opposed to like your ability to do something physical. I mean, um, grace, maybe. But I think, I think they can each I think be poisons. interpreted as either physical or personality. And that's a thing with a lot of things like moves in this game often have two stats that you can like pick which one they are um and like stats themselves are like you know this could be how physically strong you are this could be like exactly like how bold you are how quick you are like it, it, things that are different from necessarily like this is my strength stat yeah yeah exactly there's no there's no like muscular or whatever um although no now i want to make a game <laughs> now i want to make a game that's all just like buff stats quads <laughs> oh biceps God. traps roll, roll plus traps weightlifting rpg <laughs> oh that would be a very different version of this game but i would be into it <laughs> anyway thirsty muscle bros um anyway we're Where's gonna jot that moves? down for later um let's talk about some of the moves um the moves revolve around fighting or influencing different people or figuring things out about them um, the basic moves that everyone has access to are um, fight. Um, and I think the fight move is fun because it can end in kissing or conditions. You can kind of like choose like, ooh, do you tilt up their head with the point of your sword or do you like uh, make them take a condition? You choose. There's defy disaster, which I think is interesting because it's there's a vagueness to what defy disaster means. Um because we were just at LMDA and I was just doing masks, um, to me, this is kind of like unleash your powers in that game where it's like broad enough that it can be a bunch of different things, um, but specific enough that uh, with Defy Disaster, you like have to rush headlong into something, do something in a risky way. And there's like a high risk, high reward um, sort of situation, uh, which I think encourages players um, to leap into daring uh, sort of situations. Would you say that Kanye West was using Defy Disaster when he took the mic from Taylor Swift? Yes, precisely. Well, <laughs> well no, that's, but here's the thing. In he practice, in one. this game, for context, I played this game uh, an unhealthy amount. Uh, it is absolutely just like the catch-all move for like, you've done something, <laughs> let's see how it goes. And he certainly did something. It didn't go great, yeah. 
It was a downbeat. <laughs> a, a thing that's not not unique, but I think is great about Defy Disaster is that it lets you roll any stat based on how you like how are you defying disaster. And I suspect that it's uh, influenced by Dungeon World, which I think has a kind of parallel move, but it's called Defy Danger, which similarly is like if you're avoiding danger by using your strongness, you roll strength. But I like Defy Disaster because it's broadened that idea. And again, actually, because the stats are not just like, are you fast? It's broadened that idea to be like, Okay, this can act on kind of any scope of time or ability or whatever of, you know, in in some of the examples in the book, it's like, yeah, Defy Disaster might be rolled for a whole like somebody is chasing you down. Make one roll to Defy Disaster or it might be like you need to like you are running away from someone and need to leap over a chasm, make a roll to leap the chasm. So I love the flexibility of that. Yeah. Sometimes, depending on uh, what's happening in the narrative, um, you might stagger. There isn't really a role for this. You just you choose like how you stagger. And do you um, kind of take a knee? Do you grin and bear it? I thought that was a really interesting thing. Um, like you can choose to take more conditions to not um, take a complication uh, which I think is like fascinating narratively that you're like, actually, I want to take a bunch of damage, damage um, in theory um, in this sort of situation. Um, and I think that that's nifty. Um, moving on to some of the more romantic moves. Um, we have heartstring moves, uh, which are entice, figure out a person, influence with a string, smitten, and finally kiss in a dangerous situation. Um, we'll talk about the string mechanic in this game that kind of like gets used in these moves a bunch. Um, then there's the recovery moves. You have emotional support, um, which allows you to have a moment of vulnerability with another player or an NPC in order to help clear them of a condition or something like that. Um, and then a thing that, Nick, I know you thought was pretty cool, um, and I think it's very interesting, is call on a toxic power. Um, the game believes that like there are these toxic powers in the world, and sometimes we need to navigate them. So, Nick, do you want to take that? Sure, yeah. Walsh offers ways to think about this game that might not be as combative, but like the sword part of Thirsty Sword Lesbians is, again, it's assumed that there is like adventure and some adversarial... Uh, opportunity to be had here with some what they call toxic powers, which could be anything from like a repressive state to heteronormativity itself to something to, to like a religious institution. It will depend on what your game is and the setting that it's in. But I really like that they've included call on a toxic power because I think it opens up interesting narrative uh, possibilities that are not just, you know, it's not just like, oh, this is, you know, that is the thing over there to be beaten down. It's like, no, actually, this is like a thing that we're enmeshed in and constantly grappling with. And it's not a, it's not necessarily a good thing to do. It has, it carries some pretty significant possible consequences, but it may be that it is the narratively right thing to do or the like narratively interesting thing to do. Or even it might be the expedient 
thing to do because toxic powers often have access to things that you might need. There's a reason they're toxic powers. Exactly. Not, not just toxic stuff. And then the last power is, uh, is the special power is end of session, which essentially gives you experience at the end of session based on what you did in the session. But it's not the last power because every playbook has its own powers. And playbooks in this game are essentially the character classes. Um, what it defines them as, though, is, quote, a combination of a fictional archetype and particular internal emotional conflict. So, like, not only do playbooks in this game give you an idea of, you know, your job per se or, like, the kind of person you are in the world, they give you an idea of, like, who you are emotionally and narratively. Um, so there's a bunch of different kinds, but they all sort of give you the same thing, which is gives you um, an archetype. So, like, Again, like what, like what are you? Are you a spy? Are you a former villain? Are you like, uh, like hunky heartthrob? Many different kinds of things, um, that would be an archetype in fiction. Um, and they also give you um aesthetics, which are essentially are like what you look like. So like, what clothing are you wearing? What is your weapon like? Um, what is your personality like? And um, the book will give you things that you can choose between or let you make your own for that. But it gives you ideas of like what this playbook is going to be like as a person generally, unless you're coming up with your own take on it. And then they give you stats. So every playbook has basically two columns of stats for the five stats. You pick one of those. Um, essentially, you get two plus ones, two zeros and one minus one. And then you get two free ones to add to any of them you'd like. Um, but so, you know, you might have like daring plus one, grace minus one, or like another playbook has like grace minus one, daring zero. It just depends on like the way you're going to play this kind of playbook. And then um, they also give you uh, moves. So every playbook will have two to three moves that you must take. Like the playbook gives you this move um, as well as a couple that you are allowed to select from. Um, and then you can take more upon level up like in other Powered by the Apocalypse games. Um, it also gives you your truths of heart and blade, which essentially are when you become smitten or you figure out a person, either of those powers, either, either of those moves. Um, your playbook gives you questions you ask of and answer for the character you've become smitten with or figured out. Mm -hmm. I also think, I think it's so fun that there's like figure it out and figure it out when you're fighting. Um, like, I love that everyone gets access to a different way to figure someone out when they have locked swords with them. And I think there's something that, like, speaks to me very strongly as someone who's like, you two should fight and then make out um, <laughs> sort of vibes that I have. But was very neat to be like, oh, yeah, you do learn something about someone when you fight them, don't you? And like, what does that look like? Um, we all have uh, sort of favorite playbooks that we wanted to talk through just to give you examples of what they are. Um, Todd, do you want to start? Yeah, I think my favorite playbook is the Spooky Witch. I love that they're like nerdy and awkward and talk to ghosts. Well, the unseen, but you get to define what the unseen is, but like maybe ghosts. Um, and I really dig the friends in weird places move. It has this like uh, monster prom sort of vibe to it, which if you don't know monster prom, go find Monster Prom and play it. It's a wonderful competitive dating sim. Uh, my favorite playbook in this game is The Infamous. Uh, it's essentially lesbian Vegeta. Like you are a former villain 
of some sort who is now on the side of good. And the entire playbook is essentially about you have to prove that you are good and you are fighting against people's perceptions of you. Um, so like you are essentially like beholden to the other players and you are inherently less trustworthy to them. So you are also like held back in a narratively interesting way. There's also a playbook called The Devoted, which sort of does, it, it does self-sacrifice for its own sake. But I like The Infamous more because it gives you way stronger relationships with everyone else. One thing I will say about that is that um, The Infamous is my favorite playbook in Thirsty Sword Lesbians, um, and I've played it frequently. Um, something that I think is true of all of these playbooks is that it, it's tricky because it requires a lot of buy-in from other people, but particularly the infamous because it like, um, you do a bunch of questions and character creation to sort of form relationships between, uh, the, the group when you, before you get started and like the infamous's questions are very much revolving around like, what would it take for you to forgive me? And like, how, you know, how can I atone for this? Um, do you still hate me? And it's like the other people like, it's it's no fun if they don't actually hate you or like there's no tension there. Um, so, yeah, that's like it's really cool when it's done well, but sometimes it's hard to do well, I think. Yeah. You do also have to have a, a table of players, you know, and trust pretty well, because that's yeah. when you have antagonistic relationships in games or improv or act like you have to trust the people you, who are your scene partners because, the, you know, it, it's you have to know that someone you are attacking knows it's not them you're attacking, it's the character you're attacking. And also, like, it's good and fun that you are attacking each other, um, and that's narratively interesting. So, like, you have to find the the ways to play that that is really interesting and dramatic for a listener, where it's like, oh, these characters hate each other, and then still works in the room, where it's like, okay, no, but we're working together to hate each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's it's fun to kind of challenge that, like, because I know when I play two TRPGs, there is often a vibe of like, oh, we're players in a party together. So we have like we can have things that we don't like about each other. But ultimately, like we're on the same side and we're all working together. And that's a thing that we can take for granted. Um, and it's fun it's to Goku kind of and Vegeta. That. It's really Goku and Vegeta. Like they are they hate each other. Vegeta wants to kill. Well, Vegeta, Vegeta hates Goku. Goku doesn't really care. But like <laughs> Vegeta wants to kill him. So like that's the he's like, no, I'm going to kill him. So no one else is allowed to. Or like mm -hmm. I'm going to prove that I'm stronger than him. So like I'm going to fight you. Like even if you want to fight Goku, like, no, I'm Cell, get perfect. Uh, I'm talking too much about Dragon Ball. <laughs> Look, we all love an angry five foot nothing king. <laughs> as as somebody who barely knows what Vegeta is, I will say that uh, <laughs> what I can offer to this is my favorite playbook uh, is The Seeker. And I will I'll qualify that by saying if you call something The Seeker, there's a like 80 percent chance I'm going to be really into it. Um, but what the seeker is, is basically uh, it's it's the playbook for somebody who is coming from one of those toxic powers from one of those spaces out there that is not good and is actively unlearning everything that came with that space like at, and are at the very start of their journey. So one of the things I love about that is that it is just filled with cool role-playing hooks because obviously you have to answer at the start of the game what is that power that you're coming from and like where is it in the world and how proximate are you to it now and you also have to name ideally with the gm to you know to whatever extent the the two of you want to work it out uh it has you list out commandments that 
the power wants you to adhere to that you will, you know, the kind of arc of the playbook bends toward ultimately repudiating those commandments. But you have this really fun mechanic uh, or fun, fun, scare quotes, uh, <laughs> a mechanic where the more you adhere to your commandments, the stronger your tradition score gets. And if it is strong enough, you eventually start taking conditions whenever you violate a commandment. So that's just a really like, I don't know, I, I find that a fascinating, delightful uh, source of tension within the playbook itself. And it's also a fun one to play in a because like many Powered by the Apocalypse games, every player is supposed to have a different playbook in Thirsty Sword Lesbians. So you get to also be sort of the outsider or the one who's like not quite as certain of things, including uh, you can choose to take a move called Silly Tourist where you get to ask questions of people by being like, ha ha, I don't know how things work here. Whoops. <laughs> and still still get insight, even if you fail your role to figure something out. As I, I just find that archetype really fun. Um, my second favorite playbook after the infamous is The Beast. Um, as we've discussed on previous episodes, something I'm really into is thinking about queerness through like the question of like monstrosity and assimilation. Um, which is kind of the central conflict at the heart of the Beast playbook. It's sort of playing with this idea um, that if you, it has a, a track that's similar to the tradition track for the Seeker, where you're kind of moving on a continuum of like civilized to feral. And if you go all the way down in the feral track, you transform and you're sort of fully a beast. And if you go all the way to the sort of civilized end of that track, you sort of you assimilate fully and are accepted in the in the society that you're moving in. But also, you know, what have you lost? What are you denying about yourself? It's sort of this question of like what it means to live your full truth and, and what you sacrifice by not doing that in the name of assimilation, um, which is like a very fraught question, because the other reason I like it is like I think monsters are cool and beasts are cool. Um, <laughs> so like I contain multitudes. Um and the other thing that I love is that one of the moves that this playbook has is called Big Dyke Energy, which is sort of like a move to like establish yourself as a threat um, in a group to sort of pull focus onto you and protect the people around you. So, yeah, that is that is my favorite uh, playbook. There's also something and I can't remember where this is because it's not a beast move. So I think it must be squirreled away somewhere else. But I'm 99 percent sure there's also something where if somebody like accepts flirtation or something from the beat there's some way that the beast can give other people the power to go beast mode i don't remember mm -hmm. where that lives but i just also like that i like that if you date a beast you get to also turn into a beast <laughs> i have i have this has happened to me um and i don't remember what the i don't remember the details of it but i yes um <laughs> uh, at the time i was playing i think a devoted and we were sparring outside at a fancy gala uh instead of um cavorting with the guests anyway um, so we've talked about this a lot, but just to sort of explain what they are, um, the sort of replacement, I would say for hit points or harm in this game is called conditions. Um, conditions represent the emotional toll that a situation takes on a player character. They grant penalties on certain types of moves that use specific stats and they sort of, uh, the handbook encourages the player who has say the angry condition to think about, oh, how is this emotional state that my character is in? How would that affect my role play? What choices might I make because I'm angry in this situation? The conditions are angry, frightened, guilty, hopeless, or insecure. 
this the conditions and the strings which we'll talk about in a second are really cool kind of combination of mechanics from a couple of different games these conditions are clearly indebted to brandon conway's game masks the game we constantly talk about but don't play on this podcast which is a game about teenage superheroes that has virtually the same five different conditions that again replace damage uh, they tweaked some of the names for this one but they're they're very similar so you can get rid of these conditions by using the emotional support move on another PC or NPC, and that'll clear it for that person. Um, so you need somebody else to come to you and like give you emotional support to clear one of your own conditions. Um, or uh, the other option for clearing them is to engage in some kind of destructive action associated with the condition you're trying to clear, like uh, breaking something out of anger or uh, running away from a situation and leaving something valuable behind or two of the two of the options. Um, and if you're ever in a in a scene and you mark more than five conditions, uh, that renders your PC defeated, which means that they can't act for the rest of the scene. Maybe they run away and they're sort of out of commission. Maybe you're, you know, curled in a ball in the corner and you're not able to, you know, deal with what's going on. Like you are in some way sort of taken out of the action, but there is no, like you can't die from having too many feelings in this game. What, one of my favorite options they give you for being defeated is maybe you rant furiously in the background <laughs> for the rest of the scene, which is a very like. <laughs> That's a very, very like, Yeah, I was going to say it feels very Shira, very like cartoony uh, answer to that. But I love it as a possible not failure, but like a possible you've been taken out of the scene condition. <laughs> Um, one of the other mechanics that you've heard us mention a lot uh, are strings. We've talked about taking strings on people. Uh, this is the second mechanic I mentioned that was inspired, I'm pretty sure, uh, by Avery Alder's game Monster Hearts, um, which is all about being a teen monster and dating and having sex and like just dealing with emotions and relationships and sexuality and all those things. It's what if Teen Wolf Vampire Diaries and every other monster show was one television show and your sessions were episodes of them. <laughs> uh but what what a string represents is basically emotional influence over another person. The idea is evoking heart strings, right? So my character might have a string on Percy's, for example. And what that means is <laughs> um, what that means is that I can s essentially spend that to directly influence someone with the influence with a string move, uh, which lets you pretty much incentivize them to take a certain course of action. Um, or there are certain moves that can be strengthened if you spend a string while doing them uh, so that if you want to use this move on somebody that you have a string on, you can burn that string to like boost its effect. One of the other interesting things about strings, and that is different from Monster Hearts in a way that I think is really fun. I, I'm, I will say I didn't have time to fully reread Monster Hearts, but I'm pretty sure this is an adaptation, um, is that if you gain four strings on someone, that triggers a string advance, which means that you learn something about the character that even they didn't know. And I believe you also get to boost up and get an advance. Am I right about that? Yes. Uh, you usually get experience. Oh, you mark. Ex that's right. You mark experience, not you don't fully advance, but you mark experience toward it. And I re and I really like that because strings, as I remember them from Monster Hearts, are like kind of a little more fluid they're not quite as uh, tactile and spendable. And this is a really fun combination of the sort of Hicks reset from Apocalypse World, where if you boost that up again, 
you get uh, you get to mark experience and the fact that in monster hearts you get, you can actually like use them to accomplish things whereas in apocalypse world the hicks is just like a bonus to a stat that you roll um so i like this kind of combination of ideas here uh the gm also gets a certain number of generic strings every session that they can use to tempt or persuade pcs toward a certain course of action so those are not attached to specific players it's just the gm has strings that they can spend at any time to kind of push and pull the narrative in ways that they think are fun and interesting they can also um get used as downbeat moves like Mm -hmm. uh if you mess something up and you like try to show some bravado or try to entice someone and like you roll a downbeat maybe they get a string on you instead which i think is very like fun and interesting um i also think that it's really neat that this mechanic um as you were saying nick like incentivizes getting another player to go along with you on something like sometimes you can literally bribe them with an experience point um, or you can like add to a role. Uh, but I think that there's often times where like players are maybe at odds about like what to do in a certain situation and having this like, hey, actually, like if you play nice with me in this moment, we can do something cool and I'll give you an experience for it. Um I think is a fun way to like get the party on board. Yeah, it's a good mechanical way to resolve a dispute at a table that would otherwise be like, what are we going to do? And it's like this sort of like gives you both like narrative power and a way to get it done quicker and then give each other advantages later. Mm -hmm. Speaking of experience points and shit, uh, let's talk a little bit about leveling and advancement. Um, so there's a couple different ways to get experience points. Um, one is having rolled a downbeat. Um, another is confessing your love for a character. Uh, a third is striking a blow against oppression or de-escalating a violent situation. Uh, another is leaping into danger with daring and panache. Um, and a final one is using a safety tool. Um, for all except rolling a downbeat, all players mark experience at the end of session um, if any player character did one of these things during the session. So there's a way to almost fully level up at the end of every session if like everyone's doing cool things. And so it encourages people to like play adventurously, to play safely, um, to get all up in their feelings about these characters and how they ship them and so forth, uh, which, yeah, it's just neat. Because everybody marks experience, if one person does the thing, it sort of keeps everybody even with each other, which I think is really important for a game like this, because like if you're so emotionally invested in something, it can feel real. Like, I think the feeling of being like, oh, I'm behind everybody else in experience points can feel really garbage. Um, so I like that this sort of keeps everybody together and sort of encourages you to work together because it would be really hard for one character to do all of these things in one session, probably, and have it feel like it makes sense in the fiction. Uh, but it feels extremely achievable for everybody to do one of those things. And I also really, really like that this specifically encourages players to use safety tools, um, which don't have to just be like something bad happened. So I'm playing the X card, but it could also be like I'm adding this to the palette, which is a safety tool that has to do with like available things that you want to be in the game or whatever. So the safety tools they offer are not just like when something bad happens, which is helpful. It, it can also just be checking in. Like that yeah. is one of the safety tools is just like 
when you're about to do something that you're like, I should, I should just do this. Just be like, are we cool? Is everybody good if I go down this route? And if everybody's like, yes, cool, you are doing it and you use the safety tool, which is good. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, every five experience, you can change those in and take an advance, which could give you access to new moves in your own playbook, sometimes in other people's playbooks. Um, you can improve a stat. Uh, and the game suggests that you dramatically change your costume or your hair whenever you advance, which is fun. Like, how did you get this new power and how does it affect your look is very fun. I think as the producers of this show, we should require that <laughs> a dramatic costume change accompany every in real up. life in real life. Yes. Yes. They can't <laughs> describe it, but you have to do it have to pull out my costume chest. Just get like an undercut real quick on the Zoom. My barber would be so mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, now that we've given you an overview of a bunch of the different things uh, that are involved in this game, we want to highlight um, some other like more nuancey or more like fine tooth um, tidbits that we're into. Yeah. Um, in the in the vein of uh, safety tools. I really like the way that the handbook sort of explicitly in the beginning says this is a game with a lot of flirting and a lot of romance in it and a lot of big feelings. Um, so we encourage you whenever that gets to be something that you don't feel like you're equipped to role play for whatever reason, like turn to the mechanics, be like, I want to make a role for this and resolve it with a role and narrate it out. So like it, it is really, really upfront about like, here are the ways to keep yourself safe. Here are the ways to make you feel really supported because like, you know, not everybody feels super confident coming up with one liners or being really flirtatious with their friends. Um, so not only can you kind of writer's room it like we talked about earlier, but also you can just be like, I want to make a role for this. Um, <laughs> and there's also uh, an emphasis on player choice and consent for all of the romantic moves. Like there's very much like check in with that person, make sure that they're feeling OK with it. Any moves that have to do with romance, like require the player's active consent for them to happen to that person. Um, there's no sort of way in this game for something to happen to your character that makes you the player super uncomfortable uh, and feel super unsafe. And I think and I think if I'm remembering correctly, it's just to just to drill down a little bit into what that is. There's no there's no way to, like, make someone like you. Yes. Yeah, you know, like like the like you can always flirt with someone. But what that means is always like like how that's received and what the response is, is always in the in the hands of the recipients including mechanically like I, do, I don't remember offhand what the choices are but it's basically like they can accept it and get xyz or they can be like no thank you and i maybe you get something then rather than the, i don't remember the details but like there are different mechanical outcomes but it's always their choice yeah that's why it's entice and not like seduce right yes Although I'm sure there's there is lots of seduction in this game, but like um, at the language of entices, I think a really good example of how it's sort of like, oh, here's your character's option for putting something on the table, um, but everybody else gets to decide if they want to pick it up or not. Well, in the way smitten, which is one of the main moves works, is you it's your choice to be smitten with another character and you declare that as a move and. It it is sort of a move that gives it puts you at disadvantage, <laughs> but 
it's useful mechanically later and it's useful narratively. So like when you say you are smitten with someone, you give that character a string and you answer a question that like will presumably give them some sort of advantage or like ability to act on that if they want to. So like the beast, for example, that playbook, it says like answers the question, what have you done that you are sure they view as inappropriate? Um, which can sort of like come up later or, you know, that can come up in conversation. Um, the other character does not need to reciprocate with that, but like if they are interested in doing that, A, they have a string on you, and B, that can lead to the move later, which is called finally kiss in a dangerous situation, which if you do that move, um, it gives both characters plus one ongoing for the rest of the scene. So like it, it incentivizes romance if you want that to happen mechanically. I also love that all of the questions set up the narrative tension as well, because essentially all of them are variations on, so you're smitten with this person, why will it never work? <laughs> mm. I mean, one of the, I think the scoundrels literally is, yes, why would your romance never last? Yeah. So they're all set up toward that uh, finally kiss move. And something I like about it is that it gives it gives you narratively something that like I, I think all players should be trying to do, which is to put yourself at disadvantage. So when you take advantage later, it's a triumph. It's narratively interesting because you were on the back foot. Like if you are succeeding all the time, it's fucking boring. <laughs> and when you yourself like stagger yourself, put yourself at vast disadvantage, you know, put yourself in a situation that you are failing that is why success is interesting. And so like, I, I think that kind of everyone in every game should be trying to do that. And this is one of the ways that you can do that. Mm -hmm. um, another one of the main moves that I think is really cool is the stagger move that we talked about a little bit earlier. It's this sort of reactive move that the GM usually invokes, but you can also say, oh, this bad thing happened to my character. I think I stagger from that, which is another sort of example of how you could mechanically sort of put yourself at a disadvantage because it makes sense in the fiction. Um, the thing I think specifically is cool about stagger is that it sort of scales based on how many conditions you already have marked. Um, so if you have four or five conditions marked, the options that you can choose from for what happens to you are significantly worse, uh, than if you only have a few conditions marked. And I think the idea of sort of like thematically, like it's happening when you're suffering some kind of staggering blow emotionally or physically or otherwise um, and I think it's a it's a neat sort of framing for a for a move. So for me, in the intro to the game, there's a section titled No Fascists or Bigots Allowed, um, wherein Walsh has this like pretty extensive list of uh, different like political ideas um, that she clearly holds and thinks that you should hold in order to play this game. Um, many of these are like very like respect sex workers, respect disabled people, respect immigrants and so forth, um, which is cool. Um, but what I really like is this isn't like, while this statement does feel a little performative and a little like, oh, you caught those bad guys that were going to play your game until they saw this. Um, so many of these ideas are carried through the rest of the book in ways. And so like one of them is like respect fat people and people all, of all body types. And something that I was really delighted by um, as I flipped through the book is like, in this game, there's a bunch of illustrations of like people who are skinny and people who are super buff and people who are like chubby fat babes. Um, and that's really cool. And I realized reading this that like in all of the games that we have read, I have never not seen 
player characters who are just like muscle dudes and muscle ladies or Out like central very casting. conventionally attractive ladies. Sorry, Ben. Out of central casting. <laughs> right, right. Um, like it's this very like I know what the art looks like for every game that I've read before this. Um, and it was such a delight to flip through and be like, oh, look at that, like super curvy lady. That's great. Why don't I see that in other games? Um, and so I just I just wanted to be like, yay, representation of different body types. There are games where you'll see a a, a player character art that is a sentient orb surrounded by tree branches before you'll see somebody of a non-central casting body type. Exactly. Yeah. I will say I have seen this kind of statement in games published since this, but I think this is probably one of the first ones, if not the first one, um, where it's like, this game is explicitly anti-bigotry and like it's woven into the fabric of the game. But we're also just saying like, if you're playing this game, like do not be a bigot. Yeah. Although I think the chances of a bigot picking up a game called Thirsty Sword Lesbians with the intention to play it are pretty slim, um, but you never know. That's good to say. It's 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 a it's good to get the politics yes. out there. I found this book without its front cover. <laughs> <laughs> without its front cover or like 50 percent of its text. <laughs> My, mice ate a bunch of holes in the book. <laughs> oh, damn, they got me. No bigots or fascists. <laughs> uh, one, of the, one of the things I wanted to highlight a little bit, and we've touched on this, uh, is just how customizable the game is. Uh, and because a lot of games say that they're customizable, but one of the things I really appreciate about this is that Walsh and the writers on this team actually walk you through some of the different hypotheticals that you and your group might want to explore. Um, they offer the options of what if no magic, because... There is magic in the saying. And they also give you the like, they address even the super fundamental ones, i.e. what if no swords? What if not thirsty? What if no lesbians? Although I will note that the no lesbians one is is like, you can play straight characters if you want. Don't blame me if they end up queer by the time you're done with your game, <laughs> which I, I appreciate. <laughs> I think it's kind of impossible mechanically unless you have like two cisgender, opposite gender people in the because like you have to kind of interact with everyone mm -hmm. in the game so you, you would really have to go out of your way you would have to, to try <laughs> to be straight in this game and you would have to ignore big chunks of the mechanics for big chunks of your party presumably <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but they also they also give you some example settings i think there's four or five different uh kind of world settings they offer um one is a very fun looking you know, not exclamation mark Star Wars. Um, my favorite tidbit I noticed reading the book is that the kind of iconic scoundrel is named Hannah and is frequently depicted in the Star Wars universe and is nicknamed Han and wears like a little black vest. Um, <laughs> so lo love that. Love that for them. Um, but, the, you know, there's a sort of space opera world. There's a fantasy world. There is a really delightful magic coffee shop world. Um, and then they offer kind of open-ended prompts as well for how you can go about creating something all of your all of your own. Something I love about the game in general is it is very what you see is what you get. Like its title is Thirsty Sword Lesbians, and that really does like you know we've just explained this game for an hour, but like 
that sort of gives you everything you need to know of like roughly what it is, the kind of story it's going to be, and how it's going to work mechanically. Like it, it, it really is that. And I, I appreciate that because I think a lot of other games are like, I, it, let me, it, do you want to know what this game is? Let's sit down for like 25 minutes where I describe this setting to you and then you will understand what it is. And I love some games like that, but like this, you don't need to spend that time with this one. Yeah, you're, you're either kind of on board or you're not immediately from like hearing the name. Um, I, I will admit a thing in, in terms of the what you see is what you getness of it. A, a curiosity I have about this game when I was rereading it for this is just it feels so deeply of like like of queer Internet culture right now. Um, and I'm very curious to see how it ages. Um, and I, I want to be clear that I don't think that's a bad thing, because I think making art that is like specifically of a moment is great. But there are so many like jokes and terms i mean even like the word the word toxic is in this game manual a lot in a way that is a little nebulous at times and i always like get it but i'm like it sometimes this seems to mean oppressive and sometimes it maybe means something else um i'm just curious to see kind of how that like morphs and shifts as culture morphs and shifts around it can I give you an example of how extremely specific to the general time? This game has sword lesbians in the title. The origin of the sword lesbian meme is a drill tweet from 2018, which is extremely specific, which is extremely, extremely specific to like this time on the internet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> um, it was. Hold on, we I have don't know to that, read that out loud. I don't know that uh, drill qualifies as queer culture, but. Fair, <laughs> well, fair. even like thirsty, <laughs> like, yeah, so much of this book reads as a post tumbler queer online experience and i would say like even you know six seven years ago we weren't using thirsty in the context that we're using it right now and like will we in seven years i don't know but i enjoy it in 2040 it's a game about lesbians with swords who are dehydrated in a parched (laughs) post-apocalyptic world i do have to make a correction fight for water the drill tweet is from 2012 and i'm sorry thank you it is and i quote strongest blade in the world however it is so fragile as to shatter when handled by any force other than the delicate touch of a lesbian <laughs> love it <laughs> and i do regret that i i cannot read the punctuation in the tweet because it's, it's so as good. always perfect yes i'll put a link in the show notes <laughs> perfect dramaturgy <laughs> something we were talking about in the document before we uh, got together was I feel like the way this will age is not going to be dissimilar to Goldeneye on the N64, which was essentially the like first first person shooter that is like how first person shooters are now. Like it it was it was a 3D first person shooter that defined the way we play that kind of video game. And if you play Goldeneye right now, it is fucking unplayable. It sucks shit and I hate it. And everyone fucking you can't play that game because it's bad. Like but it's also perfect because it it figured out how to do something that then everyone else said, oh, we'll, we'll do that because that's it works really well. And then everyone else did it and refined it and figured out their own things that like, you know, I mean, Halo did a lot of it, but they figured out their own things that like built upon that. And I think, you know, any good game that a lot of people play a lot 
and is influential sort of does this, right? Like early D&D is nothing like modern D&D because a lot of that is also ass and like hard to play and not fun. Um, and I feel like the ways this game uses language around inclusivity, um, consent tools as part of mechanics, those things are going to be good for other games to pick up and I think they will. And I think some games are already sort of doing that more and more and this is just part of a broader trend. And I think some sometimes this game like does have the, I, I call it in the document, the sort of small bean tendency or like can fall into that, which, you know, I don't think you need to. And I don't think that's like built into the game, but it is a pitfall with like the kind of culture that this game comes out of. I don't think we're gonna have that problem in like 20 years. Like I think everyone will have figured that out like as a broader culture, but Right now, it is a pitfall and a thing where you have to be like, okay, yes, this is great and this works super well. And let's not fall into this really obvious open manhole right here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, I think you're right. I think there is a like, I think there, I, th I think the pitfall of this game chiefly is that it can read as like, this has to be really wholesome and everything in it is really, really wholesome and we all love each other very much. And actually, the game does not support that at all. Like, there are many playbooks where it's like, list all the reasons that you hate my character <laughs> you know right this Tell game me. is about conflict <laughs> exactly so i think um because i played in one shots of this game that were very and part of it is that it's like a one shot situation where like you don't want to delve into like a deep and intimate emotional tension with somebody in four hours um but it can definitely fall into like oh you know it has to be wholesome we can't do bad things and it's like well no it's actually really interesting um, I like women's wrongs. I like when they do bad things. I want to die in a one shot. Like I, I, I want to like blow up a planet by accident. Like, like these things. That's the the power you get of a game, but that's finite. Is that you can do absolutely unreal shit, and that's the game. Excellent. Um, well, I think that wraps us up for today. So. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks Ben for joining for our first episode of season three. You'll hear him so much more this season. Um, and join us next week for session zero of our thirsty sword lesbians campaign featuring players, Gina Famia, Mieko Gavia, Percival Horneck, John, John Johnson, Leo mock, and it will be gay mastered by Tess youth. Catch you later. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Season 3 features contributions from Christopher Dierksen, Ben Ferber, Corey Flores, Tess Huth, Romana Isabella, Leo Mock, John John Johnson, and Dex Vaughn. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and <laughs> Drama Nerds.